Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello. I'm John Alledge, and this is Skyline's The Cinemetric Podcast. The story so far, about three years ago now, I got an email from a guy called Royfield Brown, which included the immortal phrase, I am passionate about the future of Birmingham. You know, I get, I get a lot of emails with, with subject lines kind of like that. Royfield wanted uh, to write an article for me about the, about the future of his home city, the things it needed to do to kind of really sort of put itself on the map again. He, he never actually ended up doing that for various reasons instead we 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 sort of launched a podcast together which you are you are listening to now royfield was the producer for about the first 20 or so episodes of, of skylines if you've been listening since the beginning the point where the quality of the production goes off a cliff is the point where i started doing it in-house but he's still you know he's still a friend he still comes back and he's been on the show a couple of times and he's also still got a lot of uh, a lot of other podcasts one of which uh, i appeared on last year i think called friday 15 which is just you know royfield chatting to to someone about a topic he finds interesting with with some interesting music interspersed in it so you know we i, I sort of put out a guest episode uh which was uh, the friday 15 i appeared on just before christmas in which i sort of talked to royfield about why it was i'm so weird about maps and a couple of weeks ago he sent me a message and said oh i've just done i've just done an episode about birmingham actually of a guy called jess collins from the, the birmingham music archive which is all about trying to promote the musical history of, of birmingham which is not you know not a topic that we we've probably given enough airplay to and you know i never actually got that article that royfield was going to write for me about the future of birmingham but I got this podcast instead, so we decided I'd put this out on Skylines. For the rest of this episode, you're going to hear a recent episode of, of Royfield's Friday 15 podcast in which he, he talks to Jess Collins about Birmingham. It's not quite the complete show. I've cut out about a 10, 15 minute segment in the middle, which uh, originally contained a UB40 song uh, and, and Jess Collins talking about UB40. Partly because, you know, the episode runs long and it kind of gets, it's not really about the city so much, it's about the band. And also to give you an excuse to, to go and, and download the original and actually check out the archive on Friday 15 or Royfield's other podcasts, including a, he does one called Dumdy Dum, which is a, an Archer's podcast, which, you know, it's not, it's, it's not my thing. I never really forgave them for throwing Nigel off that roof, but it's, you know, it's a very, very popular podcast. They've done live shows and stuff. So, you know, you can go out and check his other work. But from this point on, it's uh, Royfield Brown with Friday 15, and I'll be back as normal next time. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. In an uncertain world, there's always music which can be listened to in good company. 
Welcome to Friday, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great music. Today we speak to Jez Collins from the Birmingham Music Archive to ask if Birmingham is so big, just why isn't it better? largest city in the United Kingdom. Its GDP is the biggest outside of London. Its six universities make it the largest centre of higher education outside of the capital. It has major cultural institutions. It's given the world heavy metal and Bangra, just to name two forms of music which have bestrided the world. Why is it that we're still second to Manchester? culturally what is it about us brummies that we are seen as the butt of many a joke well what's a, an opening question it depends on how you uh, see it and, and and think about it. i mean you know are we second to manchester are manchester second to us do we want to be second to anyone you know these are sort of questions that you know, interest me uh, manchester is a fantastic city as is liverpool mm. as is bristol sheffield glasgow um, and this Sheffield, not so much. Sheffield, not so much. Oh, I love Sheffield. I think Sheffield's a great city. I and mean, you know, it's it's industrial heritage, it's music heritage. Uh, you know, it's really important. It's film uh, uh, and, and playwrights. You know, in association with Leeds as well. So I actually, do, I do think Yorkshire, yeah, Sheffield, and, and Leeds are also also great cities. Um, uh, but the Birmingham, as you say, on any sort of metric that you want to use, whether it's population, geographic spread, or size. The local authority, GDP. I've just read some uh, work last week that you know um, tourism into the, into the city was seven point one billion last year. We have the highest hotel occupancy outside of London. So, in any sort of measure, it's a major city. It's a major global city, European and global city. And you know, I'm going to be slightly contradictory here uh, and say that really, I, I don't see us being in competition with Manchester. I think we coexist, and we should appreciate. And uh, uh, and respect and talk about. Yes, yep. yes. I I don't think that we're in competition with Manchester either, right? But if you were to ask the average Brit on the street, mm. second city of the United Kingdom, mm. I'm not going to say it'll be um, 50-50 that would mm. say Birmingham, Manchester, but a lot would say Manchester. Mm. And there is something about Manchester that culturally, in terms of the popular cultural weight of that city, it is. It's, it's dwarf Birmingham. Mm. Maybe it's because of geography. It's further enough yeah. away from London. Yeah. It's, it, it, in a way, Manchester is the capital of the north mm. in a way that Birmingham isn't quite the capital mm. of the Midlands. Mm. I think you're absolutely right. I think there's, there's, I think there's three things that you can think about when, you know, if you're looking at that question, if you ask people on the street, one, I think absolutely is it's that geographic um, distance from London. It sounds daft, but, you know, Birmingham is 120 miles, an hour and a half on the train, two hours by car. That's quite a you know small journey. 
that extra 100 miles up to Manchester adds another hour and a half on. Uh, it makes it difficult to get back there and back in a day, you know, if you're doing business. And so, from my understanding, Manchester has developed and kept uh, a lot of its infrastructures. I mean, it's a, it's a great city in terms of the industrial heritage and court, uh, of, uh, of the town, of the city. But there is that sense that they have um, created and kept uh, those infrastructures, particularly uh, with music, which I know we're going to talk about a lot. I think, um, secondly, there is this north-south. So I think there is a, a sense that, you know, Manchester, uh, there, the, the country is divided into north and south. So Manchester is the north, London is the south, and Birmingham is somewhere in the middle. Uh, and so you get that, that sort of separation of people distinguished in, in, in England between the north and the south. And, and so they automatically think of Manchester. And then I think the third thing, and I think you can't o- overlook this, I think the football teams, I think the football teams, particularly Manchester United, play a huge role in the perception of Manchester. And if you put that alongside people like Tony Wilson, but also people like um, uh, uh, David Lees, I think his name was, and, and uh, I forget the other guys, uh, Graham Stringer, who were in charge of the city um, in the 80s through the 90s, as that post-industrial uh, and post the IRA bomb. I think those sorts of th- those three elements have come together to give Manchester a, a much higher profile uh, in terms of both in, in the UK and perhaps uh, globally. And you cannot under, underestimate the importance of Manchester football in that, you know, both Man City and Man United, but particularly Manchester United. And you can't, and with, you know, Birmingham sort of is fighting against that. What I think we could do better, and I think what, ha- yeah. what we haven't done is in the civic leadership of the city, uh, and I think we have some we've had some fantastic politicians, and I think Albert Bohr, whether you love or loathe him, you know, did a lot for, for Birmingham in the eighties. Yes, 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 yes. Who, 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 who? So because that's the thing about the Manchester politicians, mm. they somehow they've managed to transcend Manchester, Greater Manchester, mm. and. Whether they're large or small players, they're still players. Mm. They're still names which are have some kind of national repute. Mm. Now, question for you: Which did more destruction to Birmingham? Was it the Distribution of Industry Act mm. of 1945, or was it the Luftwaffe? Uh, yeah, I think the uh, Distribution uh, Act in 1948, and then the Labour government in 1964. Birmingham um, was growing exponentially during that uh, those periods, post-war periods. I think there was uh, unemployment between 1948 and 1966 was one uh, between one and two percent. Very rarely got to two percent. Employment was booming, and so uh, in 1948, the the Distribution Act sort of was worried about the, the economic census in London was trying to distribute across the, the country, but that massively affected Birmingham. And then the Labour government, the incoming Labour government in 64, uh, put in acts that meant uh, building work couldn't be constructed in the city centre. And that was a real, uh, put a real slowdown in terms of, uh, of of the city. And we lost something in the region of, I think in those years, the, the population is 1.1 million uh, and it shrank to 900 or 1,000. So we lost 200 plus thousand people from the city and the city stagnated and then of course in the 70s we had that huge economic um, you know manufacturing crash Birmingham was built on manufacturing you know bigger manufacturing in terms of cars but also light manufacturing and that had a massive so, so you've got Wilson in 1964 it's the white heat of technology and all of that what was their thinking because I'm sure they didn't just decide right we're going to strangle Birmingham you know what what was their thinking what was the the genesis of the idea for for them to say right 
we're going to say that you can't put too many buildings in the centre of Birmingham. I think it, I think it was a strangulation. I think you know there's some academic work that I'm you, I, I'm, I'm referencing by uh, Sutcliffe and, and Smith, uh, and you know uh, I'm just reading now. You know, declaring the growth in population and employment within Birmingham to be in quotes a threatening situation. The incoming Labour government of 1964 sought to, quote, control the growth of office accommodation in Birmingham and the rest of Birmingham conurbation before it got out of hand. So there was, you know, there was a concerted effort to stop the growth of Birmingham. And I don't think many people in the city sort of understand it. And I think we're still, um, we're still coming out of that period of, of, of uh, the, the 64 government being worried about the growth. Threat- now, I wouldn't say threatening London, but I think they looked at it as about an unequal distribution in terms of the rest of the country, and they were trying to push things out so there's a more equal spread, while you know keeping London as it was, uh, and London now dominates you know way more than any other national city I think or, or capital in the world. It's very hard to think of a, another country so dominated by its capital, and that had a huge effect on Birmingham. And as I say, you know, we, as we went into the 70s, we lost 200,000 people and the skills and the knowledge that they had. And as we went into the 70s, the car manufacturing and steel manufacturing foundry work, coal, all were diminished and soon uh, became redundant. And that left a gaping hole in the city. And I don't think Manchester, you know, going back to Manchester, I don't think Manchester was so reliant on that type of manufacturing. And they changed their economic base, you know, earlier on. Although, you know, Manchester 1980 was a pretty tough industrial town. It was, you know, really, you know, on the outskirts, it was derelict almost. Uh, You know, like a lot of other sort of, um, cities in the in the Midlands and the North, so there's a combination of these sorts of these sorts of things that come up that have really, I think, have really held Birmingham back. And if you look if you if you look at Birmingham's economic base now, it's more about the service sector. So we've gone more into finance, insurance, uh, and I think you know uh, in, that caused a problem in 2008. There was a lot of building work and relocation of, of banks and building societies and insurance centres were coming into Birmingham out of London because of the costs. And then the recession happened. So, you know, Birmingham's had a very checkered history of economic growth. But what it's always done, it's always bounced back and it's a very resilient city. Some would argue that, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this in a bit more detail, some would argue that the City Council and its agencies have been a bit too gung-ho in terms of their, um, our city motto is forward. Uh, And we are forever redeveloping, knocking down, redeveloping, rebuilding. Certainly the city centre core. Some people would argue that too quickly and too much. Um, But, you know, we are a very resilient city. And this separation between the north and the south, I think we just tend to get on with things and do things. We have an amazing amazing crafts and uh, innovation based from hundreds of years of making and creating, inventing things. And I think that's how it's in good said. And that's the story for me. That's why, that's where we should be telling our stories. If you travel the world and you go to its cities of renown, whether it's, let's say, Sydney or Paris, San Francisco, New York, Milan, is that these cities are always beautiful. Mm. The renowned has been spectacular isn't one of the many things which has shackled our city, the fact that it's not seen as being that, is it? Mm. It's, it's, it's seen as being somewhat dowdy. In terms of architecture, it's not inspiring. It's not majestic. Mm. That's a good question. I, mean, I think, it, uh, again, that's a, a complex question. So, uh, you know, we're landlocked, right? 
so that we are nowhere near the sea, um, which is a, a great shame. Uh, we don't have a major river running through us, which is another great shame. I think the city would be massively different if, we had, if the River Ray was, you know, like the Thames or the Seine. Um, I think um, we do have outstanding natural beauty, you know, within minutes of the city. So you could work in the city and in 10, you know, if I drive from my house, which is in the west of uh, the city, for 10, 15 minutes, I'm up in the Clent Hills, which are outstanding uh, natural uh, um, uh, hills. Another 20 minutes on, you've got the Malvern Hills uh, and then the other side of the city, the Licky Hills. So we are surrounded by incredible countryside. So is that greenery. Um, you've probably, you'll, you'll know this, but we do have, so having said we have no rivers, you know, we did create, uh, majorly create the, the canal network and we are the centre of, of the canal network, which was used mainly for industry a uh, hundred years or so ago, but we have more miles of canal than Venice. I understand we have more trees and green space in any other city in, in Europe. So we have natural beauty uh, rather than man-made beauty in the city. But we, but we have to acknowledge that we have acted uh, with great impunity and haste in knocking down our buildings as recently as like 1970. Um, there is uh, an argument, if you go back and you look, there is an argument to say that Birmingham would have been uh, one of the great Victorian um, cities in terms of its architecture, um, but unfortunately, uh, um, post pre and post war with Manzoni, they knocked um, you know some incredible buildings down, like the the uh, Ma- um, Mason what's his name, uh, the science school uh, that was in town, the Victorian um, museum, uh, Victorian library, and just the King Edward School, New Street Station, more should say. So we we knocked down a lot of our. Uh, incredible buildings, and that left, uh, you know, uh, it did leave a rather brutal-looking building. But uh, what I always say to people is that if you come to Birmingham, don't listen to those stories about its concrete brutality. Just raise your eyes above shop level as you walk around, above street level, and much of that beauty still remains. Although we locked a lot of the buildings down, actually we redeveloped a lot of them uh, at ground level for retail. And if you look up, particularly around the inner core, there is some incredible beautiful building so there is an absolute beautiful architecture in the city but it's just not in your face it's a bit like we've been saying before isn't it about you know what we how we talk about the city and how we promote ourselves you just gotta look a bit harder in this case you gotta look up a little bit and i think if you do that you'll be you'll be richly rewarded having said that you know typical of birmingham uh you know we built in the 60s and the 70s you know quite a lot of brutalist buildings um and (laughs) Decided to, and I'm talking really about John Maiden's work, who's one of the, the most important architects in the country. And at the point where brutalism is now in, on vogue and being recognised for its brilliance, and Maiden is being recognised, we are knocking down all the, all these buildings. So at that point where uh, brutalism is being recognised, <laughs> Birmingham is knocking down all its incredible brutalist building so I don't know what it is something in the water about Birmingham you know our motto is forward Uh, and I think we are where we definitely lead the world I think is in knocking down buildings and rebuilding them and then knocking them down and then rebuilding them but if you come to the city now the city is starting to be opened up a bit like a flower a bit like a petal it's starting to open up and reveal itself they're knocking down you know whether rightly or wrongly places but what they are doing is revealing new insights to the architecture starting to stand its own particularly around the town hall and the council which for me is one of the great sort of 
uh, European squares. It's absolutely beautiful. When you stand outside the council house at the top of New Street and you look at that and you look at the town or you look at the Chamberlain Square, it, it is absolutely stunning. And so we, we are a Paris, we are a London, we are not um, a, a, a Milan, but there is a, a multitude of beauties uh, and architectural styles in the city. You know, some of our pubs that remain. So it, it, again, it's one of those, it's just... You just have to uh, dig and look a little bit deeper in, in Birmingham. And if you do, it will reward you. Uh, and, Jez, yeah. Jez, why didn't you run to be um, City Mayor? <laughs> because I can't think of a more passionate professional Brummie than you. We've got who, who is the mayor of Birmingham now, well, the new mayor? That's very kind. So there's two things about mayors, right? There, uh, we, there is a mayor of Birmingham. Uh, which is drawn from the local council group, and it tends to go to the eldest uh, councillor, and it's an honorary position for a year. And then we have an elected mayor for the West Midlands Combined Authority. And I want to make this point as well, actually, Roy, because you've you've mentioned the the words Greater Manchester. The uh, mayor of the West Midlands Combined Authority is a guy called Andy Street, who uh, was from is from Birmingham or Solihull, and was the chief exec of Lewis's and the, the the department store that you know he oversaw rapid expansion. He's a Conservative MP. He beat Sean Simon, who was an, the Labour um, uh, candidate. Um, two things. I'll come back and why I'm not not a mayor. Uh, we struggle in this city and in our region where Manchester have really pushed forward, is we have a continual squabble about what is or how to describe ourselves. So we, Coventry and Warwick uh, um, and Solihull uh, Solihull aren't part of our um, combined authority. They've gone it alone. Wolverhampton and Warsaw are, um, but they can't agree on being called the Greater Birmingham um, Authority like Manchester. So Manchester's made up of Manchester, Berry, Oldham, um, Eccles, Salford, Trafford, you know. And Wigan's nowhere near and Manchester. Wigan's nowhere, and they're cool. Yeah, exactly. But they understand that the, uh, the capital of that region is Manchester and that, that's what has the, the uh, kudos attached to the name. So if you go to China, they understand that people probably won't know about Wigan, but they'll have heard of Manchester. It's exactly, for me, it's exactly the same in Birmingham. If you go to China or wherever, India, you know, with all due respect, people aren't really going to know about Warsaw, West Brom, Wolverhampton. They might have heard a little bit about them, but they certainly know about Birmingham. The trade is big, as you've already said, you know, GDP, trade, etc. Uh, and we should, it's a real issue for me that we aren't known as, as Greater Birmingham. I think that would give us a much stronger identity. And unfortunately, identity means a lot. Uh, and I understand those people and those authorities in Wolves and, and, and Warsaw wanted to hold on to that identity. But so, so, so Jess, are you saying that basically the root of our problem is branding? So we're, we're not in the north, we're not in the south, we're in the Midlands, branding issue. Our, our most success, I'm, I'm, I'm a Birmingham City fan, but I will concede, on, <laughs> when I'm being honest, that Aston Villa have been a little bit more successful historically than Birmingham City. And then, and so the most successful team is not even called Birmingham. Mm. Mm. Um, in terms of um, understanding what we are in terms of a conurbation, little little Warsaw, silly Dudley, right? Don't mm. want to be called Greater Birmingham, mm. so they shoot themselves and then us in the foot by not being called that. It's all about branding, and then we have we saddled with this accent mm. that is always seen as the least attractive when it comes to all these English accents. And then, and then the last thing, we gave the whole world heavy metal. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. It's all about negative branding, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It is it, to an extent. I, mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to say it's all about branding because I think there is. You know, I think there are. It's always much more complex than that, isn't it? I think that you know, people. You know, there are strong. I don't know. Heavy metal. We've got a lot well, to apologise. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll come back on that. I'll just get, let's go back to Dudley and Wolverhampton for, just for a sec because I think you know the Black right. Country is a very proud region. You know, it has its. It's got deep, deep links to this country uh, and and its history, and I think I understand their desire to hold on to their their, their identity. But I do agree with you that it does uh, it, it does them no favours. I think in terms of a capitalist market, and it's what we're talking about, you know, capitalism, really. I suppose uh, in terms of, uh, of of being holding on to that identity or, or refusing to be part of a broader set of activities under the Greater Birmingham umbrella, I think there'd be much more the, the perception, and that is branding. The perceptions and the branding would help them and would help Birmingham, I think. But I do understand it's, it's more complex than that. Heavy metal, I wouldn't apologise for. I think heavy metal, you know, mm. couldn't have been made anywhere else. And, uh, and I think, you know, uh, the, it, and again, this is more complex, but I think people like Tony Naomi and Ozzy Osbourne, Bill Ward uh, and, and Geezer Butler, um, Judas Priest guys, led... Uh, John Bonham and, and uh, Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin, you know, and then going into Napalm Death. There is something, you know, this city is an industrial city. There, it was built on manufacturing and foundries. And in the early 60s and 70s, in a fairly tough, desolate post-war world. But you know what? You, that is, that's really, really good analogy that you're making there, that the city was founded on iron forges mm. and foundries and in the white heat of that the clanking mm. of metal the discordant sound you get the horrendous thing which is heavy yeah. metal so that 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 to me uh is is a perfect thing but even then what we've not been able to do even though we gave the gave the world this incredibly influential genre of music is then to really claim mm. it as our own and to go to the world and to say this mm-hmm. is what this is what has come out come out of Birmingham in a way that a couple of indie jangly <laughs> indie, indie pop bands in Manchester managed to do the whole kind of Manchester thing or the Mersey beats in, in the 60s you know why is it that nothing fashionable nothing saleable in terms of youth culture popular culture can we actually brand as being part of Birmingham? Okay, that's another deep question, and I'm going to go back again, as is my usual habit, right. and say just go, go, go back, back to heavy metal and say, you know, while mm-hmm. they were doing this and while they say this and while we understand this, it's much more complex. And this is, to me, this is a strength of the city, but also something we have to think about. While they were in those foundries and they were hearing that clanging, and they said that you know that's the only music we could make. They were working next to black uh, Afro-Caribbean people. They were working next to Asian, uh, Southeast Asian, particularly Indian and Pakistani people. And those Asian and black people weren't coming out and making heavy metal music. They were coming out and making Punjabi folk and then Bangra or Scar and reggae. So it's always much more complex than just saying, well, this is what happened and this is, how, this is the sound that you make. And that, to me, is a great strength because it shows the diversity within the city and, that's a re- and, and the culture in the city and how these people worked, lived and played next door to each other but created many different sounds and we are the home of metal and I think there are some people trying to do these things and, and make that claim, people like uh, Capsule and, and their project Home Metal. I think we, I, I would argue that uh, you know we are 
if not more uh, as important and yeah, more important as London in terms of reggae and black music culture uh, over extended period, going back to gospel, not just reggae, but gospel star. Um, people like Joan Armour Trading, you know, uh, uh, people like Laura Mavulina, soul jazz. And I think we are the centre of Bangla music, you know, with, with people like Punjabi and, uh, you know, the Kuali sound. So there is this confluence of sounds, and I think that no other city can, can offer that. Go- but isn't that then, Jez, part of the problem? That we've actually done, we've actually given given the world three diverse takes on popular mm. music. So heavy metal, Bangra, and Bangra is always always seems to be lost in the yeah. whole discussion. That you know we take this form of music from the Punjab, we give it a British spin, mm. modernise it, throw it back at the world, and the Birmingham bit of it is completely not to be lost yeah. that the crucible of this music is yeah. brum and then as you rightly say um arguably i, I might slightly disagree with you because i think in terms of lovers rock in the mm. late 70s early 80s you know that's definitely a south london thing mm. so and that's distinctively yeah. british mm. um distinctively london sorry but we did have a massive uh part to play in terms of British reggae, whether it's UB40, Steel Pulse and then, you know, with the beat and, and people like that, with you know, with kind of Scar, but it's three different genres of music, and with each genre we've never been able to say made in Birmingham, put a stamp yeah. on it and people are going, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll you know, I'll wear yeah, that hat. Yeah. You're absolutely right, and that's a great source of frustration for me and for others, I think. And I, and I think the city is slowly waking up to that uh, and, and realising its musical heritage plays a role in sort of social cohesion because it tells a story of Birmingham. And as I say, you know, Bangra is a great example. I mean, Bangra, you know, if you, how it's been explained to me, it's Punjabi folk, as you've said. And then, and then mm. because they were living in areas like Handsworth or Spark Hill, or Sparkbrook or Borsleeve, they'd live next to white and black neighbours and they'd hear the bass lines of, the, of reggae and sound systems on one side, of, literally on one side of the house. And the other, they'd hear white guitar bass music uh, coming from the radio or the record player from their other neighbour. And they just fused, they fused the white guitar lines with the uh, bass of the reggae with their own Punjab. I mean, what story is that? I mean, you know, wh- where else in the world are you going to get that, as I say, confidence of sound and this idea about living, working and playing together? And it, to me, it's incredible. And I think the city's slowly, slowly coming towards or coming round to thinking they need to give a bit more thought to, to music and not just heritage, but the contemporary music because it tells a story of the city and it also brings in investment. You know, the, the, there's a report uh, in Liverpool that Beatles tourism net uh, net uh, brings in ninety million pounds to the city a year and sustains three thousand equivalent full time jobs and that's just the Beatles and I know perhaps we haven't got a Beatles but that's one band who brings in that and there's a there, there's an absolute slice of that that you can take uh, for Birmingham because people will travel to come and, uh, and stand in the place where uh, Black Sabbath had their early gigs or where Duran Duran formed and played the gigs or where Steel Pulse uh, first started out. You know, Steel Pulse, the only reggae band of, or were, I'm not sure if they still are, who, to have played the White House. They played Bill Clinton's, you know, in all the mm. You know, Grammy Award winner, UB40, a really multicultural band 
you know, so you've got all the, and this is just the tip of the iceberg, you know, you've got a, a recording studio in Handsworth again, Perry Bar, where, you know, John Bonham was ever first recorded and uh, Noddy Holder was first ever recorded where uh, the Thunderbirds um, sounds and special effects were made, a bit like the BBC's radiophonic uh, studios, but in Birmingham with a woman, uh, Joan Taylor, and her husband, John, making making up these sounds. So there's this plethora of stories that I think we don't, we should bring together and, and tell a more holistic approach to the city. And I think you, you mentioned something just a little a minute ago. There is this sense, I think, of coolness. You know, we haven't had perhaps an Oasis or a Smiths or a Joy Division, you know, which, to be frank, are white monocultural uh, music, indie guitar-based music, which I love and I grew up with. But, you know, it's uh, that is there something there in terms of the representation and media about how these things are always given significance and importance over others, you know, and this sense of, like you say, coolness. And I think that's a problem that we've had uh, and we continue mm-hmm. to have. And that is a, I've got no clear answer for you here, but it's a very difficult thing to, to try and uh, challenge and change uh, perceptions. But I'm trying to do that as are others. When you look at the kind of the great musical cities of the world, whether it's, let's say, New Orleans or New York, or even let's go go to a city which is kind of um, not really heralded as being a great musical city, Um, let's say Chicago. You know, I I love house music. Yeah. All, All of these places have in common is a diverse population. And I know I've just dealt with US cities there. Yeah. But there are going to be many others around the world. It's a Cape Town in, in, in South Africa. Yeah. It's a great musical city. With Birmingham's great diverse population, why have we not been able to um, to sell the world on the multifaceted face of the city of Birmingham? Uh, I, I think because no one's tried. I think, you know, if you speak to the guys in UB40 or you listen to Duran Duran or Still Paul, so they'll always talk about Birmingham, come from Birmingham, and they're quite proud of it. I, you know, they often don't live in the city anymore, which is always a problem. But I think um, I, I think the, the, the musicians themselves have a great store uh, in the city and how it's helped shape and form them. But we haven't... Um, I mean, I, I think there's a more general... I think... in particularly in the UK, we don't, we've never really grasped our music history and heritage. You know, we have, the, we're very proud of it and we talk about it and how it's, you know, shaped the world. And But we have, you know, there's the British music experience up in Liverpool and the Beatles and the Cavern stuff. But we've never really sort of seen it as a, as a cultural entity. And what I'm trying to do is move away from this sense of important bands and say, well, you know, I'm interested in music culture. Now, of course, within music culture, the musicians and the bands themselves are central to it, but it's also the spaces and the places, you know, the venues that we go to. It's also the record shops. It's also the promoters and the managers and the press. And so I'm interested in the audience, the people who consume it. it. Music is important as a cultural asset rather than just an economic. And I think popular music is always seen in this country as, a, as some sort of economic, ephemeral uh, type activity. And I'm trying to, me and others are trying to make this argument say, no, 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 it's much deeper than that. It goes to the, the root of our of who we are and our, our identities. And I think Americans do that, maybe because, you know, we are, don't think, forget Royal Philly, in terms of popular music, we are fighting against thousands of years of history. And so this idea that popular music is somehow 
important historically when compared to King Edward or you know the, the Great Wars or the British Empire or whatever it might be. It's a you know it's quite a difficult thing to to to, to argue. More and more people start to study this and understand that popular culture and popular music are actually worthy of historical um, uh, research and historical um, discovery. Uh, and, I, and I'm hopeful that that will be the case again in Birmingham. And I think. New Orleans, Cape Town, uh, Melbourne, and Sydney are doing it in, in over in Australia. I started to realise that actually, you know, people are interested in these sorts of things. Cities need to tell a more pluralistic history and stories about themselves. And what what's the best way to do that? Well, through their music. Uh, and I think in Birmingham, I think we could hopefully we could lead uh, the country. I know I keep talking about Liverpool, but Liverpool's hung up on really the Beatles, much to the annoyance I think of other uh, acts who come from there um, and I, I'm, you know, I'm sure people in Liverpool would disagree or people who do these things in Liverpool would disagree but same as Manchester, you've got a period of you know, from 1978 to 1990 or 2000 from you know, Joy Division through to Oasis and, and that seems to be their history as I said, Birmingham's got a history of 50, 60 years going back to people like Andy Hamilton who came off the Windrush, so there's a real interesting story to and how we tell it and how we share that with the world could be groundbreaking, but we do need the people who have some influence in the city to understand that, and slowly, slowly, they are starting to do that, I think. Why did you fall in love with Birmingham? Because you're not just um, somebody who just knows some stuff about Brum, but you're obviously in love with, with the city that you, you live in. When did it start? <laughs> As a, you know, I'm 40, 48 now, so 50 next year, 49 this year, 50. And I suppose as you get older, you start, you just have more experience. I mean, I've been lucky to travel. You know, I lived out of the country for a year and a half and I've managed to travel the world a lot. And, uh, and as I say, as you, you know, as you sort of get a bit reminiscent, you look back to youth and you, and you re- recall the, the great times you had, you know, all the bands I've seen, uh, the, the bands I sort of grew up with in terms of friends being in bands. You know, and how music, particularly music, has shaped me, but also how the city had changed. And, and you know, as we've been talking, my annoyance as a girl, my annoyance of going away places and people saying, Birmingham, where's that? Or taking the, the mickey out of their language. And and me thinking, well, I, I know more about this city. That, that A lot goes on. And I know that, you know, from cinema, you know, creating celluloid to the first um, to the first Odeon cinemas, writers, the, the um, surrealist movement, uh, People like Burn Jones and the great series Art, Pre-Reflect Art. So I knew that I knew as I was getting old, it was just much more than what I was being shown on TV or reading in, in the press. And what really, I think, you know, if, I, what, if you ask me to speak, I think what really started to pinpoint the things that I do and why I became more and more passionate about it is I remember uh, reading a map of, uh, it was in one of the Observer's, uh, weekly uh, music thing when they did a music paper on Sunday and they did a music map of, of the country about bands from the and they put Dexys Midnight Runners up in Manchester or something stupid and it you know way more than it should it just really annoyed me and from that moment I thought right I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something about this I'm just really frustrated at continually hearing negative stories or reading negative things about the concrete city about the stupid accent about how nothing ever happens about crime because that wasn't the city that was reflected to me, all the things that I was doing, you know, and it is, you know, there are crap parts of the city, that, you know, that, you know, there's things that are, uh, you know, well, I don't mean areas. Well, you know, you, 
<laughs> well, but there's, there's creativity and culture in, in anywhere that you go. Nietzsche's is not my area, so I don't know. But, you know, Nietzsche's has got the schools, schools like the Holt and um, Duddeston Manor, you know, that where loads of uh, uh, black uh, musical youth, but football players, yeah, football players and other musicians came out, you know, got some great food places. So, you know, there's culture and creativity everywhere, but we're never told about that. And, and if you're not told about it and you grow up in Nietzsche's or Lazelle's, you are told that you, you don't amount to anything. My equivalent was Chelmsley Wood, which is now in Solid but my family grew up in Chelmsley Wood and I spent a lot of time there. And we were always told, you know, you're white trash, you're not gonna you're gonna never gonna achieve anything. And you keep telling people that they, they ain't gonna achieve anything and they not gonna respect their environment. And the reality is that people my people in Chelmsley Wood went off to be head teachers in schools and lawyers and sisters, record producers, uh, record store holders, uh, and they did all this fabulous stuff. Same in Nietzsche's. There were people in Nietzsche's themselves who were continually told, "You're worthless. You're not. You know, you're not going to do anything." And actually, they do do things, and that's what I love about the city. There's a, and this isn't true of every city as well. It's not a special thing, but in my city, this city, I know that people from those areas where they're told they are worthless are some of the most creative. Uh, a clever, innovative, forward-thinking people, right? Uh, and they go off and, and do great things, whether it's in business, in culture, in arts, in science. And it, we are just—we're just not told. And this is the—this uh, is a rambling answer to your question, but this is what keeps driving me. Uh, I, music is my thing, but actually, more broadly, that I know that there are amazing people uh, in this city who are doing amazing things. There are amazing places. Uh, and we should be telling more people about it because it is it is really worthwhile coming and we are something and we are interesting and we are creative and we are innovative and we are forward thinking. Is there a job waiting for you to be head of the City of Birmingham PR? <laughs> no, department? there is not. No, I'm not. Uh, I'm not that well versed. And uh, I, I, actually, I wouldn't want it because I, don't, I think uh, you know you, you get forced, and I think this is part of the problem that you know. I'll be careful what I say, but you know, with those marketing things, you you they you you're forced to look at the big things, you know, things like Cadbury's or the shopping centres or whatever, and they're really important. But you know, they're only part of the story. So I'm much happier being on the outside, sort of nudging and pushing and and promoting the the real little bits of culture, the little bits of, about Birmingham that are really important that no one knows about that are that we should be telling. And I think there's a much richer story to be told that way. If I was head of PR for Birmingham, I think I, I'd probably just be swallowed up with all the meetings and the, the bullshit that goes on with that. Tell me how we're going to make this change in, in the perception of of the UK's most exciting city. Because I'm telling you, Jez, right, as someone who travels outside of Brum, right, when I say Birmingham to people, they still sneer. Mm. Well, sneer is may, may, maybe somewhat overstating it, but they do have a little bit of a yeah. teacher. In a way that if I said I was from Manchester, they yeah. never would. And you know the reality is they haven't been to Birmingham, I imagine. And it's a great shame because I think I think the accent. I think you're right. I think there's there's a bit. There, we are we are a class based country, and the Birmingham accent, and you know probably the black country is a little bit below us, and then Birmingham has always been seen as and uh, yeah, has been considered stupid. And someone mentioned the other day, actually, I need to need to look into this. Uh, you know that the the way that we finish our words uh, are in a different key. Um, and that might be the reason why our accents are, are, are sort of derided upon or derided. Um, I, I, and I think, you know, I, I get great delight 
when people come who haven't been to the city come and go, oh my god, I didn't know this was there or that happened or you know this city is such a great city and it is. It, you come to the city and you don't know it and you introduce it. It's amazing. You have to work a little bit harder um, to to find things out, but it is a great city that does great things and people genuinely love it when they come. Um, I we have. For me, we have a, I wouldn't say a once in a lifetime, but we have a, a golden opportunity to tell the world uh, a complete, well, I say the world, particularly the Commonwealth, uh, a completely different story about the city. And that's the Commonwealth Games in 2022. And I can't think of a more apt um, setting than Birmingham because this city uh, is built upon people from the Commonwealth. And I include, you know, white working class people in, in, in that. And, uh, and I'm now challenging some of those cultural organisations and the uh, media organisations. Well, what story or stories are we going to tell? Are we going to keep telling them about retail and shopping and food or are we going to tell them, actually, look at the things that we've made and created, look, particularly for me, look at our music heritage, look at, you know, what other city would produce or could produce a band like UB40 who has sneered at? I, I get that. You know, people think they're, they're, you know, light reggae. But you know what? They've sold 140 million albums. They get revered. They get the full treatment when they go to places like Hawaii and uh, New Zealand from the Maoris and the indigenous people for the work that they do. Like I say, they've sold 140 million albums. Their first two albums are actually some of the greatest reggae albums ever made. Uh, and they're a completely multicultural group of working class people. Yemeni, uh, Afro-Caribbean, white. You know, they're, they're amazing. So how can we show these things? When people, one and a half million people are going to come into the city, they estimate two billion people are going to watch the games on TV. What we, what stories can we tell them? How can we give them a different view about being through its music? And for me, and other people would argue uh, differently, but for me, music is the, is the gateway, the door to telling the story of, of this city. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. 
Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, it's me again. This, if you haven't worked it out, is the bit where we I cut out the a chunk of Friday 15 where they're talking about UB40. And it seemed like a good moment to kind of pop back in and I'll put the ad break here and so on and stuff like that. But I also thought I'd mention, um, if you're paying any attention, you'll have noticed this is episode 96. So we are getting dangerously close to the 100th episode, which is slightly terrifying how I've, how I've managed to do that and quite how much of my life I've wasted talking to you people. Still, you've wasted quite a lot of your life listening to me go on, so I can't really complain. But yeah, we have we have some plans for the 100th. Uh, Steph's going to come back. She's got she's writing a quiz for me. Going to get some questions um, from. You know, we've done questions from the audience before. This time we're getting questions from from some old friends who you'll recognise from past episodes of the podcast. So there'll be a lot, there should be a lot of familiar voices on that. But something else I'm thinking of doing around that is just like we've now got to the point that. Anyone who is who discovers the podcast is pretty unlikely to start listening at the beginning, because I mean you'd be you'd be insane, wouldn't you? If you're doing that, you know, brilliant, well done on making it all the way to episode ninety six. <sighs> Hi, but you know, if at this point it's it's probably a sort of more pick and mix arrangement, really. So I wanted to do a quick post on on Cinematic, just kind of like listing. Some episodes, I think, if, you, if you're just discovering the podcast for the first time, you know, which episode should you really check out? And I can't work out. I mean, I have my favourites. I have a lot of them that I, I can barely remember at this point. Uh, but I kind of, I'm interested to know, you know, if you've been, if you've listened for a while, you know, why not get in touch and tell me which episodes you think that it might be good for a, a, a new person to listen to? Because I've, I really don't know anymore. If you want to tell me your views, you know where I am. Anyway, I'm going to get out again now. Back to the show. Imagine this in a club, uh, in a, in a in a blues house, in a blues party in Borsa Heath in 1980, just blaring out the way. And UB40, I don't know if you if you agree with this, but in 1980, 82, all you would hear in Birmingham, uh, the, you know, particularly during summer, where people having barbecues or the windows were open during the, the heat, you'd hear UB40 coming out. And if this was, if we made films like they made films in New York, that they would be the soundtrack. Um, to, to those films, you know, they'd be the background music as people are walking around doing the business of driving up and down the streets. It would be you before, and that's why I love this band. That's why they're so important to Birmingham, and that's why I particularly like this song because you can sit and listen to it. You can imagine it in a blues club. You can imagine, you know, proper hardcore reggae dudes dropping this track uh, in, in the shabines and the blues around Birmingham. Um, and so, yeah, perhaps it is. Perhaps it is Birmingham's Bohemian Rhapsody times two. UB40 obviously got their break um, by playing small music venues in and around, whether it was, you know, the, the city centre back then in the 1980s. Where are the good small music venues now that new bands can actually get, first go out yeah. and play in front of an appreciative yeah. audience? Well, this is, this is a hot topic at the moment in Birmingham and, and, and across the country. You know, we're, we're losing... Lots and lots of small places and, 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 and venues. The Flapper is just about to close, which has been going for 50 years. Presumably it's a live music venue for 25 years, but bands like The Editors sort of started there. Where, where is The Flapper, Jess? So The Flapper is, uh, if you know Birmingham at all, it's behind the Genting Arena, which is the, in, the National Indoor Arena on the canals. Mm-hmm. And there's a block of floor flats right in the city centre. 
uh, on the canals by four blocks of flats. It's been there for, it used to be called the Longboat, then the Flapper and Firkin, and now the Firkin. Um, the Rainbow in Digbeth, uh, which is the sort of cultural creative quarter of the city, um, uh, the, the Rainbow is closed. That their license was revoked um, uh, a couple of months or so ago, but we're hopeful that that might come back. Someone else might take that on. We lost the Jug of Ale, where Oasis played to 15 people. We've lost Golden. So we've lost lots and lots of venues for, through numerous reasons, mainly through developers wanting to, to build more and more flats. But we do have some great venues. We've got uh, things like the, the Institute in, in Digbeth and uh, the Sunflower Lounge for small indie-type bands. We've got things like Lab 11 uh, in, in Digbeth and the Rooftop. Um, and mezzanine in, in Digbeth. Uh, we've got the Hare and Hounds, which is still going strong. It was actually the first place that UB40 played in uh, in 1980. Um, but there is an issue around, you know, the, 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 the venues I've said there predominantly play, you know, uh, non, uh, you know safe music. I, I can't think of the word. I don't want to say black music or urban music. But there is there has been an issue, and I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this, for a number of years about how we're, we're you know, black youth can go and experience music because of the laws placed on promoters who uh, who promote urban nights uh, for want of a better term um, you know they face a lot of pressure and hassle from the police and they're often closed down so there is that sense of venues are closing down because of the redevelopment and the end of their life cycle new ones are coming up but there is still this sort of elephant in the room about well you know where do black uh, and age and progressively more Asian uh, youth where do they go and find and, and listen to new music um, because it's very difficult uh, or the police make it very difficult for, for those promoters to put live music on so we have still still got that problem in Birmingham but there are you know we have a we have a good range of venues but we, we could always do with more I think uh, and there is a sense that we, we, we lack a couple of sort of mid-sized venues um, the sort of four eight hundred to a thousand because you need those things as you you mentioned to progress you need to start and cut your teeth uh, at those very small ones where they all need to write in your face and you need them mm. to, to progress and develop and go through the stages of that so it's healthy but it could be much better so where does the cramp pub come into this whole kind of campaign to keep um you know brum music alive and vibrant well, the Crown campaign uh, is something I've been working on for a while, and the, the Crown, if people don't know it, is when you the New Street station has been redeveloped. So you can you can they basically made a walkway from the south to the north of uh, the city centre, and you come out through the, the south side of the, of the entrance, and there's a beautiful pub on the corner of Hill Street and Station Street. It curves around the corner. It's two doors away from the Electric Cinema, which is the oldest working cinema in the, in the country. It's uh, about three doors. Uh, which is about another three doors down from the repertory, the old rep theatre, which is the oldest purpose-built theatre in, in, in the country. So it's on this historically important street. Uh, and the building itself has had a 40-year association with live music. It was the site of uh, Ian Campbell, who's the father of Robin, Duncan and Ali from UB40. This is some heritage there. He had a, a folk group there, and he recorded the first ever live folk album called Keg at the Crown in 1964. Uh, it became uh, then something called Henry's Blues House, and it's where Black Sabbath had their first ever gigs, and where uh, blues musicians like Sonny Boy Williamson, uh, Chappie Jack Dupree would play, and where Tony Iommi and John uh, uh, Ozzy Osbourne and uh, Robert Page, Christy McVeigh from Fleetwood Mac, she was a, she was from Birmingham, they'd go and listen to these blues musicians, and they incorporate what they were hearing and seeing into their music. 
and then they'd go and play there, as I say, Sabbath had their early gigs. Then in the 70s, it became uh, home of the punks. It's where um, Rankin Roger from The Beat worked behind the bar and where The Beat sort of started off very early days. It's where GBH, who was still gigging, started out. It's where the punks and the skins met. It's where John Taylor from Duran Duran had a residency in 1978. and said, you know, it's really important. That's where I learned. Uh, and then it uh, sort of went into a little bit of uh, disrepair and be- then became... A few years later, the centre of punks again. So this had this forty-year period of uh, of music association, and arguably, I, I would argue that it's actually internationally important, particularly around the Sabbath uh, connection. And that if it was in any other city, or particularly in, in America, it would be a museum and a tourist attraction. You know, you can actually still go and stand on the stage where the four original founding members of Black Sabbath, who we say created and invented heavy metal, played their first gigs. It's, it, it is. The cavern to uh, you know heavy metal aficionados, but it's also got a much deeper history. So I'm, it's been closed for years, three years. It's been bought by a company in Japan who want to build a hotel on it, and I've just stuck my head above the window in the last few weeks and said, "Well, actually, look, it's still closed. We've got the Commonwealth Games coming up. Why can't we think about using?" This beautiful building, which is 130 years old, historically beautiful building, as a, a as a music club, as a bar, restaurant downstairs, as a music museum upstairs, and you can have a I don't know heavy metal or Black Sabbath boutique hotel upstairs. So for me, there's a there's a there's an opportunity to create a really famous, fabulous, I should say, fabulous visitor tourist attraction for the city that celebrates its music heritage. This would be the perfect location. It is internationally important uh, and it would have people from around the world travelling to come and see it and to visit it and to stand on that stage where all these amazing musicians uh, you know, first started out and, and played. And I'm just trying to see if we can get something done. It's very difficult. The, a Japanese organisation owns it. They're quite reticent to, to tell us what their plans are or to uh, connect with us. I think I don't think I've got much chance of doing it, but it's, it kickstarts that conversation. Well, for the, it, like we're having, it kickstarts it and says, okay, if we can't have that, well, what else are we going to do? Where else can we do it? Should we be doing it? And it's it's making a, a few people sort of sit up uh, and, and think, oh, okay, actually, perhaps we should be taking this more seriously. You know, in, in, in the in the Midlands last year. I think live music contributed £231 million to the local economy and supported 2,200 jobs. Now, that's not heritage, but, you know, it's, it's, they're classic as music tourism. And so I'm trying to make these arguments to people like Andy Street, the, the mayor of, of West Midlands, to the city council, and saying this is not just some sort of, you know, whim or nice nostalgic thing. It's actually, there's actually economic benefits in you uh, supporting, underpinning, understanding putting infrastructure in to music music uh, activities in the city both historical and contemporary and you know there is a return uh, for the city it brings in a lot of money and we're only scratching the surface I think we could double maybe even treble that uh, you know, over a period of time uh, if we if we if we give it some thought and think about it and we invest a lot of money into the arts into film and dance is a big one now well why don't we do it to music all music you talked about the return that um, music can give the city, but the city of Birmingham is definitely returning as well, isn't it? Yeah. But if there is one thing, one thing which, let's say, the city elders should do, um, other than music, other than getting behind music to to help promote the city, what should it be? And then there's one thing that Brummies should do mm. to... Uh, 
to extol the virtues of the city as well what should that what should they do and what should it be wow okay I think so looking at the city agencies for what a better word they're, they're we, and you've mentioned earlier about branding they're fixated on having a branding uh, or marketing slogan or scheme and they're struggling for it and it seems to me and they're always saying well what is the one thing what is the one thing and you know if we're true, if we're truthful about the city, there isn't one thing, and we should move away from trying to have this one, uh, you know, story. We our motto is a city of a thousand trades, and a friend said to me, and I've, I've been thinking about, this, you know, well, we should be a city of a thousand voices as well, because we have, you know, I think it's 190 languages spoken in this, in this country, in the city, sorry, um, which is incredible, and we should we shouldn't think about the city as, in its one voice. It's, we have a plurality of voices and stories and narratives and histories and it's beyond me but i would i would argue that that's what we need to that's our greatest strength we talk about diversity that it's our it's our greatest thing that we've given the world i think the way that we live and work and play next door to each other and it would be to to try and encompass that and say okay well how 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 are we a city of a thousand voices how do we communicate that to 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 people to take uh to understand what the city is about for brummies I mean, I don't know. I think I, I'm not sure if I change anything. I think you know. I think I think we are a very self. I tell you, I, no, you know what I think. The, the whole thing about the geographic location of, mm. of Birmingham is is actually really important and central to our lack of distinct identity. But it's not just. Um, the country looking at us and saying but where exactly is it what exactly are they it's also us in and of itself Mm. i love football i love football and it's for me quite marked that if you were to start from hadrian's wall and go to every city uh progressively going further and further south those cities those towns are one Mm. club towns in terms of support, in yeah. terms of support. So when in Newcastle, no one supports yeah. Manchester United yeah. in Newcastle. Ditto Sunderland. Ditto Leeds, <laughs> right? The first major UK city you can get to where there is a confusion about civic pride is actually mm. Birmingham, i.e. you will see born and bred Brummies that support Liverpool, mm. Manchester United, as well as Aston Villa and Birmingham City. You know, arguably, it's not even that way in Leicester, somewhere like Leicester, or definitely not in Derby. Everyone in Derby supports Derby County. However, if you then pass Birmingham and go further south, then this lack of local civic identity pride, which is manifest through supporting your local football team, is writ large. So in somewhere like, I don't know, Bristol, they're all over the place. But that change happens in Birmingham. And I think us Brummies, in and of ourselves, um, we don't have, there is something about it. We are not, and maybe it's part of the secret source of Birmingham, this whole a thousand voices, a city of a thousand trades. But Mancunians are like, I am from mm. Manchester. In a way that Brummies, yeah. we don't extol our 
local our civic identity yeah. in the same way. That's true. I, I haven't got an answer. I think you know, there's there's a sense. Again, you know, we're we're a, a city that's welcomed people from all around the world, and perhaps our civic pride is is, is diluted through that, but makes it stronger. I think you know, you get told enough times that your accent's crap and you're crap, and you know, there's an element of that. There's also a sense, uh, and you can't really—I don't know how you sort of bottle this—but there's a sense that, yeah, well, you know, Manchester or Liverpool will carry on and, and, and talk to talk, but we got on and do things, uh, and you know, we don't need that uh, that validation of the things that we do. We're quite happy in the in in our history and in the way we go forward and the things that we do. And, you know, if you want to join us, join us. If you don't, don't, and we don't really care about it. But just is that really true? Because the, the other sense that I get from Brum is that our development in the last, I don't know, let's say, 50, no, yeah, mm. 50 years, 60 years, since the massive debacle of the concrete collars and the 60s and early 70s redevelopment, is that we are quite happy to have um, our decisions made upon high for us. That considering there is this radical mm. history to the city, and you know Joseph Chamberlain could go and create Corporation Street and put gas lights everywhere, and and then previous to that, um, before the the, uh, the eighteen thirty two mm. Reform Act, you know, there were two hundred thousand people talking on uh, listening mm. to speech on Newall Hill. You know, Birmingham has this really proud, mm. radical history. But actually, we're kind of top down when it comes to solutions. And I actually think what the City Council needs to do is to create an environment whereby those a thousand trades mm. can actually flourish. So we've got to stop thinking of big developments all over the place. but And actually create spaces so that... Um, whether it's young people, entrepreneurs, can actually come in and colonise bits of the city centre uh, on the periphery and make them unique and distinct. You know, and, and we've actually got to take that control back into into our hands as opposed to waiting for another multi-million, billion-pound scheme to, to float in from yeah. Dubai, China, wherever, uh, knock down a few buildings, yeah. b- build a few more. That actually uh, were a passive. Well, no, I, I disagree. I think there's, there's, I mean, okay, let's go to the city council first. I think you know there's a lack of understanding in in in, in Birmingham and elsewhere of the actual of the actualities of, of of the city council itself. It is, I think, it still is the biggest uh, municipal council in Europe, uh, and with that, it becomes all the attendant problems. You know, so if we're talking about culture or civic pride, well, they're important. And I would always defend them. But when you were trying to run uh, something that, that had 1.55,000 employees that had to ho- house, you know, uh, 500,000 people, is responsible for the environment, for uh, the police, for the education, for social services, elements of the health, uh, transport. You know, this it's by far, by far the biggest local authority in this country. And as I say, it was, uh, maybe still is in Europe. So if you go to London, London has a lot of devolved uh, boroughs and they have a say over, over what goes on, you know, through financials and, and decision making. Manchester is, a, is lit almost a quarter of the size of, of them, both geographically and the city council. So I have some... You know, I have, and I started working the city council. That's one of my first working life for the city council. So I have some sympathy for the city council 
and having to, you know, the, the, the huge, huge problems that it has in terms of trying to manage all these things and things get lost. So I, I, I understand that. I also think that, you know, um, I don't think we are a passive, but I think, you know, uh, as I said before, people in Birmingham, in my experience, just get on and do things, right? And I don't, uh, uh, Manchester, you know, again, let's use Manchester, actually, let's not use Manchester, let's use Liverpool or Newcastle or any other city. You know, we are becoming more and more homogenised and it's more and more, you know, around capitalism. You know, so it doesn't matter. You, know, you speak to people in Manchester now, and they'll tell you that actually all our spaces and places are, are, are disappearing, and it's just becoming what we're losing our identity. You talk to people in Liverpool, uh, that massive redevelopment of of one, it's called Liverpool One by the docks, it's a massive shopping centre. We're losing our public spaces, and we're losing our, our public realm, and we're losing the, the, the spaces and places where culture and creativity uh, can take place. And people are finding it elsewhere, but they're being dispersed. And we're becoming one big, massive blob of sameness across this country. And it's a real issue. And Birmingham is absolutely no different from any other city in that respect. What I can't speak for what goes on in the other city, but what I do know in this city, that people are clinging on to this sense of being makers, creators, innovators. Uh, and they are making and creating things. But they just don't particularly go and shout about it they're, they're just like, we do what we do and who cares if anyone likes us now people like me get frustrated with that because I'm saying well actually there's more that can be done we can bring more people in and you know really does it does it really matter if you know what someone in Alabama or New York thinks about Birmingham will it really change what goes on in Birmingham I'd like the city and its people to be more forward thinking uh, and, and more proactive in the things they, they do and say. Uh, because it matters, I think, for, for generations, you know, for my kids. I want my kids to think, actually, I come from a city that does do and create things and I can be like that. Look, there's that person over there. I want to be like that and I want to emulate that. So that's where the history is important for me rather than just some nostalgia trip. It's actually about knowing your history, understanding your history and then emulating and creating your own history. And that's where cities can generate and regenerate. So I, 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 I hear what you're saying. I don't fully agree with it. I, I, I agree with parts of it. Um, but Birmingham, believe me, is no different to any other city in, in this country at the moment. There is just a massive building development that money's flooding in from China, India, Dubai, the Gulf states. Manchester City, you know, bless them, you know, uh, uh, all their, most of their stuff now is built on, on money from Qatar, which is an awful state. No one, Blinks and Eyelid in Manchester, they don't care. You know, they get to, they're being successful. But actually, the roots of their money is disgraceful. It's awful. You know, but it brings cachet and kudos to the city, and they'll milk it for its worth. Mm. Jez Collins, thank you for coming on to Friday to extol the virtues of our hometown, the city that we love, Birmingham. And um, you know what? And it, and it is the greatest city. <laughs> <laughs> Without doubt. <laughs> Bishara were a reggae band from Mosley in Birmingham and they were formed in 1976. The band are most notable for their 1981 lovers rock hit Men Cry Too.
show you can do that by emailing me at royfield at gmail.com you can find me on twitter um, i'm not great on the platform but i am at royfield on twitter and of course you can go all the way over to facebook and you can find friday 15 there oh one last thing be awesome if you could write us a little bit of a review on itunes or on a podcatcher of your choice see you all again in seven days time on another friday been listening to skylines the podcast from city metric the new statesman city site it was presented and produced by me john ellidge if you enjoyed the episode then please do consider leaving us an itunes review it really helps other people to discover the show and you know the more people get listening to this show the sooner i can achieve my real goal of world domination for the medium of trains thanks for listening goodbye Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.